Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. We've been in a series of sermons on prayer because prayer is a vital part of the Christian's life. The sermons preached by John have impacted me personally. John, being our lead pastor, does most of the preaching. And I'm personally giving them another listen. I want to encourage you to consider doing the same. May we be a genuine and faithful house of prayer. To date, just a call to mind, we've covered the following texts. Luke 11 was the first sermon. Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. It's the Luke conversion of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew 26, learning prayer from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the third message was hindrances to prayer in our relationships. The launching text was Isaiah 1, but there were a number of texts mentioned. Uh, our relationships can hinder our prayers was the point. 1 John 1 was confessing sins when we pray. And last Sunday was Ephesians 3, the love of God. Today, Colossians 4, 2 to 4, and my title, cleverly taken from the text, is Continue Steadfastly in Prayer. So, verse 2, chapter 4 of Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. May God bless the preaching of his word. The Apostle Paul lays down an apostolic injunction telling us, commanding us to pray. When Jesus was ready to ascend to heaven, he gave us something we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not only about making converts, it is that, but it also points out that obedience matters. So in Matthew 28, Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. In other words, Jesus cares about our obedience. There are things he expects us to do because obedience reveals our love for Jesus. In John 15, verse 10 and following, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the lies Satan brings to us is that if we obey God, it's a harder path, it's burdensome, and we are tempted to think at points very stupidly that somehow sin is more attractive. And, and that if we... If we only would pursue sin, we'd somehow have more fun or, or more joy. That's the path to happiness. We can be deluded into thinking. But Jesus says, no, 
No, your joy will be full if you obey what I command you to do. Verse 12, he goes on. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've commanded you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So the inevitable question then is, do you love God? And do you pray? So three points directly from the text. First, continue steadfastly in prayer. Second, be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. And third, persist in prayer for missions. So continue steadfastly in prayer. There are voices, teachers that will tell us we don't need practical instruction as Christians. We just need doctrine. Doctrine will be sufficient. They say we have the Holy Spirit. We don't need an instructor because we're spirit-led. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo. He lays down both doctrine and application for us. So think Ephesians 1 to 3, and then Ephesians 4 to 6, or Romans 1 to 11, loaded with doctrine, and then 12 to 15, practical application. Here in our text, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. The word steadfastly means persist. Keep on with devotion. Persist. Keep on with devotion. It's a little different than just do it. It is persist. But stay at it with devotion. This is in keeping with the words and teaching of Jesus, who in Luke 18.1 said, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There's the danger. There's one of the challenges with prayer. We might lose heart and give up. And in this regard, I'm inviting us this morning to assess our lives regarding prayer. D.A. Carson, in his book on prayer, says one of the most important steps we can take is to recognize where we are. I'm inviting you to consider that this morning. Where are you at with this topic of prayer? What things impede us? What gets in the way? Why do we fail to pray? Why, why are we inclined to give up? Well, surely Jesus helps us understand part of the problem when he says in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therein is a challenge we face. And so D.A. Carson again says, I doubt if there's any Christian who has not sometimes found it difficult to pray. In itself, it's neither surprising nor depressing. It's not surprising because we're still pilgrims with many lessons to learn. It's not depressing because struggling with such matters is part of the way we learn. But what is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. We find prayer difficult. I had a friend involved in missions, and this particular location was in Africa, and he was describing folks who got up early in the morning, walked eight miles to make it to a prayer meeting, and then returned home to work. And I remember thinking... I struggle sometimes just making a prayer meeting, much less adding in the eight-mile walk, 
probably uphill both ways. Um, just the, the sheer uh, challenge of it and, and the way folks responded to it uh, did enlighten my desire and inform my desire to pray. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What else hinders us? If you're hearing this sermon series on prayer, we can't claim ignorance. Can't say, well, we're naive. Uh, we don't know anything about prayer. No, we've been informed. D.A. Carson again. Clearly, Paul saw prayer as part of the Christian struggle. The word group is often associated with the strenuous discipline of the athlete who struggles to prevail. Paul understands real praying to include an element of struggle, discipline, work, spiritual agonizing against the dark powers of evil. So what are the little foxes that get in the way? Uh, what, what things hinder us? Uh, I'm going to run over a list of options and possibilities. The point is not certainly to memorize this list. The point is simply listen for you in this list to see if it might describe you so that you have something to confess and repent of. Uh, first, I'm too busy to pray. I mean, I want to. Don't get me wrong. I think it's important, but I have a lot going on. I'm so busy I can't get to prayer. It's, uh, I just consistently run out of day. If I had 27 hours, I'd get to it. I just need a little more time. I can't make it happen. It's a little bit like our financial giving to the Lord. If we don't give first to the Lord, we may find out we don't get around to it. If it's just simply, Lord, I'll give you whatever's left at the end of the month, we will often find we manage to find other things to do. It's a little bit like that. It's a matter of putting first things first. But surely there are seasons of busyness. You have a new baby uh, or you have lots of kids running around, uh, which is a distinct season. There's schooling, whatever kind it is. There's overtime at work. There's travel for work, etc. But when it comes to prayer, we can access the Lord at any time throughout our day. We don't need to allow busyness to be a problem to us, right? We can always call on the Lord. So we think we're too busy. Or we might say, I'm in a dry season spiritually, you know? I mean, it's just been dry and I, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like praying. Um, to which we want to say, be very careful about your feelings becoming your functional God. It can happen to the best of us. Be careful about our feelings being God. Feelings are real. We don't deny them. But they don't ultimately determine our actions. Not ultimately. If we're tired, perhaps a nap is a good idea. If you desire to steal something, it's never a good idea. No matter how you feel about it. So there are feelings we recognize, and they're, they're legit, and we deal with it. But I say be careful about making feelings our God. Our approachability to God is never based on our feelings, never ever. Our approach to God is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's once for all done, complete, finished, and final. That's the basis on which we approach God. And... I want to mention the command to prayer 
isn't eliminated by our feelings. Oh, oh, you don't feel like it today. Oh, take the command out. Don't be steadfast in prayer today because you don't feel like it. That's not the point. Our feelings are not our God when it comes to prayer. Third, uh, I can relate to this one. I've been here. It sounds arrogant, but I have no need to pray. I've got things under control. Things are going pretty good. Um, No immediate challenges in front of me. When we face challenges, we are, of course, more inclined to pray. But we aren't in control of much of anything. And even though we don't like weakness and we don't like to ask for help, uh, I want to suggest our day is coming where we will have great need to pray. Fourth, uh, some folks might think they're too bitter or angry to pray. There are actually people I've worked with over the decades who when I challenge them toward forgiveness, they say, I will never forgive that person. People sometimes want to cling to bitterness, want to hold to it. And when we're bitter toward people, there isn't any way we can reasonably or realistically pray for them. You'll find in a marriage when a spouse has bitterness problems, they aren't praying for one another. It just doesn't work that way. The channels are clogged. We must put bitterness aside. Fifth, we might say, I'm too ashamed to pray. Look, I I messed up really big. Uh, That sin was pretty large. And so, and so before I pray, I need to improve myself. I need, to, I need to work myself into a better place, a better condition, so I'm, I'm worthy of approaching the Lord. But that's wrong-headed. We approach the Lord based on the finished work of Jesus, not on our works. And so what you need to do is repent and pursue grace and mercy. You actually need to become helpless. So you turn to the Lord asking for his help. And sixth, I think, I think we can be at this place. I think we can just be content with the way things are in the world. Now, we probably never put it that way, but, but that can be the reality of how we view life. It's like, well, my little piece of the world's okay and taken care of, so I'm not going to pay much attention to out there. But it's a very poor Christian who looks at the world and says, I'm good with how it is. One more. Our hearts can be cold with cynicism. This would be the one I would put forward as the most concerning. Paul Miller, in A Praying Life, writes this. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Personally, Paul writes, it's my greatest struggle in prayer. If I get an answer to prayer, sometimes I think, well, it would have happened anyway. Other times, I'll try to pray, but wonder if it makes any difference. Many Christians stand at the edge of cynicism, struggling with a defeated weariness. Cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. Listen close. They both question the active goodness of God on our behalf. Begin to have hard thoughts about God. Left unchallenged, he says, Their low-level doubt opens the door to bigger doubt. They've lost their childlike spirit and thus are unable to move toward their heavenly Father. But the command 
is continue steadfastly in prayer. To this, we are called, and for those of us who are faithful, we certainly desire to obey it. So, some considerations to help us press on. Consider having a prayer partner. Uh, could be a spouse, that's the way I work at this, one of the ways certainly. Often people will have an exercise partner and think nothing of it because they find it helpful to have someone going through things with them. I find it helpful to daily pray with Beth because it helps keep me focused on prayer. If I drift and forget, my partner is there to help. You want to consider a plan. Um, It's great to be spontaneous. It's great to flow. It's great to just meander wherever. Unfortunately, with that approach, we often end up in the place of least resistance, and we often end up not doing that which we really want to do. So consider a plan which can develop a habit. If we don't aim at something, we're liable to hit the mark, which is nothing, every time. Participate in prayer opportunities. Sunday morning, we gather at 9.15 down the hall uh, to pray for the Sunday meeting. We take 25 minutes or so. It's an opportunity to pray with other saints. In our community groups when we gather, we have opportunities to pray for other saints. Or when someone shares a need with you, you can pray immediately. I had a couple of friends back at Living Hope who were really good at this. Um, I would be inclined to say, I'll pray for you. They would say, let's pray right now. And we would stop whatever we were doing and pray right then and there. I like that spunk. I like that spirit. They aren't depending on their memory, which may fade. Let's do it right now. And you want to pray for your own godliness and holiness. How can we not pray for that? Because we need help in growing up in the Lord. So D.A. Carson again says, what we actually do reflects our highest priorities. What we actually do. So see, we have intentions. And we can recite the list of intentions. I, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to be that. I want to be that. We can have this list The question isn't knowing that list. The question is, well, what do we actually do? It's just like our checkbook. Our checkbook gives an account. It gives an honest record of what things we need and what things we value. Because most of us don't need everything that we're spending money on, which is fine. But it reveals our priorities. Our time when it comes to prayer is the same way. You can certainly pray throughout the day. You have needs throughout the day. When others come to mind, you can pray. There's your family praying for friends. There's gospel opportunities. I want to remind you of the story of Daniel where where Daniel prays and there seems to be no answer. And he learns later that the answer was hindered for 21 days. Daniel kept praying. This is one of the wisdoms of prayer to know when to keep praying because Paul prayed three times and then stopped praying for a particular matter. So there is wisdom in this, but, but there are times where there's simply an element of resistance going on as we pray. Finally, remember your relationship with your heavenly father. D.A. Carson, one more time. 
we must remember that the Bible simultaneously pictures God as utterly sovereign and as a prayer-hearing and prayer-answering God. Of the various models that usefully capture both of these poles, the model of a personal relationship with a father is as helpful as any. If a boy asks his father for several things, all within the father's power to give, the father may give one of them right away, delay giving him another, decline to give a third, set up a condition for a fourth. But pay attention, above all, the wise father is more interested in a relationship with his son than in merely giving him things. As we pray, we're in a relationship and we're called to a relationship. I've referenced our youngest son who isn't walking with the Lord yet. He has probably taught me more about the love of a father and particularly heavenly father toward me than any of my other kids because this particular son will ask us for financial help from time to time, but he doesn't want to really talk to us. He doesn't really want a relationship. He's good with the gift. He's not so inclined toward the giver of the gift. He wants something done, but doesn't want the relationship. And on this end, it's not very gratifying. It's not very satisfying. I say we must be careful as we pray that we do not relate to the Lord in that way. So we persevere in prayer, knowing our helplessness, looking to our Heavenly Father, because we have some knowledge and experience of the love of God, and we continue steadfastly because perseverance has its rewards. Uh, back in the 90s, we took our three kids on a big trip out west, and as part of the trip out west, we visited the Grand Canyon, and, uh, which is just an amazing place to be, and uh, I, I believe we ended up qualifying for an award of um, least prepared hiker of the year uh, because we ended up thinking, we'll go down Bright Angel Trail and, uh, and check out the sites, and it's about a four and a half mile trail down along a cliff, and then when you get down there, there's a plateau point that I, I was told is three miles out. I wasn't sure it was quite that far, but you hike, you hike out there. Here's what we didn't know. Uh, the Grand Canyon, so the pictures we saw, beautiful. The Grand Canyon down in the middle in August is actually desert, and it was about 115 degrees, and our, our water bottles weren't thermal, and the water warmed up in like a minute. I mean, it was undrinkable and hot. It was so hot. So we went, did this hike down, and um, decided to go out to Plateau Point. And Beth, the, the kids run ahead. They're fine. It's Beth and I that are struggling. And um, we're ready to turn back and quit. And our kids come running. You got to come. You got to come. The view's fantastic, and there's cold water there. And we did, and the perseverance was totally worth it because of the amazing view that we had. If we didn't persevere, we didn't get the view. The reward was worth it. The reward was amazing. If we quit with prayer, we don't obtain the reward. And quitting is a viable option. So let us continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul moves on. Second, be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. 
Being watchful requires diligence because it's easy to fall asleep. Have you ever been driving and had the nods? I mean the serious nods. Uh, I had an alarming moment in my life. Uh, back in the days when I was dating Beth, I drove uh, what's called a bug, a Volkswagen bug, right? And uh, <laughs> they have this gas tank right out front for you <laughs> with, with the body is flimsy. <laughs> and if, if you're in a head-on in one of those, uh, good luck with your future. Um, so one night, I'm exhausted, and I'm fighting the nods, and I suddenly wake up, and I'm in the other lane. And what, what you immediately do is just you steer back and try to act cool, like that didn't just happen. But, but you're, and you're alarmed. In my experience, you're shaking alarm, because I knew it's a busy road. And if there's a car coming the other way, I know it's over. And I'm um, scared to death for like three miles. And then the nods come back. I can't help it. The nods come back. I'm tired and I'm sleepy and I'm drowsy. And you're rolling the windows down. You're trying to drink something. But you know what the nods are like. We're called to be watchful, to stay alert lest we be asleep in the light. So pray with thanksgiving. It's interesting to me to notice that Jesus didn't mention thanksgiving in either version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 or 11. doesn't really mention gratitude. Yet Jesus loves when he heals 10 lepers and one returns to say thank you. Jesus loves to hear thank you. Thanksgiving overflows from a grateful heart. So ponder your gratefulness. Just just think back over the past week. What things have you been grateful for? What things have you thanked God for? Now, listen to D.A. Carson again. He says, by and large, our thanksgiving tends to be tied rather tightly to our material well-being and comfort. Think, if we think on it a bit, think there's some truth in that. He says, the unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. So ponder what you've been grateful for, and then ponder whether there aren't additional things to add to that list. The Bible encourages us to approach God by giving thanks. One of the best and clearest examples is one of my favorite Psalms. It's Psalm 100, which says in verse 4, well, it tells us to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. But verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Give thanks to the Lord. Jerry Bridges writes this, thankfulness to God is a recognition that God in his goodness and faithfulness has provided for us and cared for us both physically and spiritually. Note the spiritually component. Dave Carson says he thinks we're inclined to give thanks for the physical component, but there is a spiritual side of things as well. Jerry Bridges says it's a recognition that we are totally dependent on him, that all we are and have comes from God. Paul, 
The apostle agrees with that in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Since we have received everything, give thanks. Back over a year ago, it was after we moved down here, I ended up with a, what they co- was diagnosed as a frozen shoulder. Had x-ray, MRI, I thought might need surgery. No, just a frozen shoulder where, for some inexplicable reason, there's a stiffness there. You only get it once in your life in that shoulder. It might go to the other one, but you'll be good. But like, you can't throw a football, you can't throw a baseball. Like, you're, you're laid up totally. And I remember thinking, I've never given thanks for my shoulder, for my shoulder working well. We have, Matt Redmond sang a song, 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. There, there are countless things the Lord has given us. That's a physical example. There are countless spiritual blessings we have in the Lord as well. And we do well to give thanks to the Lord for each of them. So the cross is our only boast. We don't boast in anything else. Through the cross, we receive every benefit and blessing we have. Let us thank God for sending Jesus to the cross. We do that regularly, but there are numerous other spiritual blessings. So thankfulness is befitting the Christian. By it, we acknowledge God's goodness, generosity, faithfulness, and we honor him. This promotes humility in us because we become less impressive in our own eyes. It's humbling to acknowledge everything I have, I've received. I have nothing to boast in. Gratitude produces humility. It stirs up our faith because we call to mind the benefits of the Lord. So Psalm 103 reminds us of this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our faith is stirred up as we express gratitude. This also promotes contentment in us. We're focused on God, the giver of gifts, and our blessings rather than focusing on what someone else has that we don't or what we might wish we had but we don't have. Gratitude promotes contentment. This means the person who's grateful has little time to grumble and complain. Gratefulness helps us stay awake. Helps us be watchful. Gratitude sharpens our soul. And the grateful person sings this lyric. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. And so we praise the Lord as part of giving thanks. It's one reason we gather every Sunday and we don't miss or stay home because we love to express our thankfulness together corporately to the Lord. And third, we pray for the work of missions. Persistent prayer for missions. Paul asks for prayer for himself, which is a rarity. His requests, though, are his passions. He asks that there's prayer for an open door for the word. So Christ is proclaimed. And he says, pray for me that I may make the gospel clear. Here we touch upon motive. 
Paul said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. But what's his motive? His motive is Jesus Christ. Because all things for Paul are summed up in Christ. A joyful task for you if you have time. Read Colossians Four chapters, and see how often Christ is mentioned. I counted 24 times in those four chapters, and I'm not counting all the times it says him, which is Christ. I mean, just Christ is mentioned 24 times. Paul is rejoicing in Christ. He's abounding in Christ. He's thriving in Christ. He's living his life in Christ. Christ is his passion. And why not? Paul never forgot his conversion. Never. Because Paul, who was then Saul, was on the way to Damascus, and he was persecuting the church. He was tearing families apart. He was taking children from parents, separating spouses from one another, fine if they're put to death. And he's, he's on his way to Damascus, and the Lord looks down and says, I'll take that one. And he knocks Saul off his horse. Saul is blinded, if you know the story, which I think would get your attention. I mean, knocked off a horse and then blinded. One would be alarmed. And he's given instructions to go in, be prayed for by Ananias. You know the story, likely he's healed. Paul never forgot because Paul knew better than most of us that he was an enemy of God. Thought he was a religious zealot. Thought he was doing the will of the Lord. But he wasn't. He was opposing Jesus He never forgot that. May we be in the same category and never forget our conversion. Some of us may have more stories that we think are more dramatic. My wife has a story where she's raising a Christian family. She prays a sinner's prayer when she's six years old. And so far as she remembers, she always loved Jesus. But in every heart, there are indications that we go our own way and we do our own thing. It may be lying, it may be stealing, it may be cheating, but there are ways in which we go our own way. And the marvel is that God has mercy on us. That's a marvel that's difficult to grasp in light of the rebellion we've experienced against God. And yet God sends his son, and God loves us, How can we not remember our conversion where we came to faith in Christ? Because we were blind. We we couldn't see. Just as Saul was blinded on the road to Damascus, we were blind. We were spiritually in that same place. And somehow, by the grace of God, the lights came on. And we were somehow made aware of our sin and of the forgiveness and mercy that God offers to us. And we, at that point, repented and decided to follow Christ. And Paul never forgot it. And so in Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. As we consider prayer, as we approach prayer, our zeal and passion is for the glory of Jesus Christ to shine everywhere. That was Paul's passion. I suggest that's our passion as well, 
the glory of Jesus Christ everywhere. So John Stott helpfully puts it this way. He says, the highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. We should be jealous for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. It is no badge of honor to say we're indifferent when the world mistreats Jesus. It's no badge of honor to be indifferent to that, Stott suggesting. We ought to have some offense at that because we care about the glory of Jesus Christ, which one day will cover the earth like the waters of the sea. So Jesus came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 121. So we pray for the gospel to be declared and for sinners to be saved. We start local and move outward. Prayer is part of the work of missions. We don't just do evangelism. We don't just go abroad. Prayer is part of the work. So if necessary, we pray for our spouse to be born again. We pray for children or extended family. We pray for our friends. We pray for neighbors as the circle goes outward, co-workers. We pray for the United States of America, and we pray for nations like Nepal or India or China or Zambia or wherever you have a passion because your prayers can impact anywhere on earth and any place on earth. We do not need to be there to pray for a particular nation. We don't simply, in other words, pray for our needs and comforts. It's not just about God bless me and mine. Prayer exists for more than that. It exists for mission. God knows our needs and comforts before we ask. We pray for the glory of King Jesus to cover the face of the earth because he is worthy. We pray for his kingdom to come because the gospel is the only hope of the earth. They may not be aware of it, but the gospel is the only hope because the gospel brings to each one of us peace. This is true spiritual warfare. Satan desires to hold on to souls in the kingdom of darkness. It's our desire to see souls transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is the battle. So John Piper puts it this way. He writes this back in 93. I wonder if he wouldn't put it different now. But in Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to the neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Paul's request for prayer is to me 
an astonishing thing. I try to think, what would I ask for if I was in that situation? He's in prison. So I think, I think I'd pray. I th- my request would be, would you make sure I get decent food and care while I'm in prison? Pray for that. And, um, well, how about pray I get released? Um, I mean, I, that would seem pertinent to me. That's not what Paul prays for. He says, pray that the gospel will be declared and pray that it's declared clearly. That's amazing. And I tried to think about that a little more. I thought, well, maybe Paul's just happy that at the moment he's not in a shipwreck or getting beaten or stoned. Maybe like, like this is a little bit safer place for him. But I don't think that's all it is. Paul has this passion for Jesus to be known, declared, and spread. And he is locked in like a laser on that request. Nothing else matters to him but that the word of Christ be proclaimed and that it be proclaimed clearly. Surely you are wise to pray for those of us who preach here at Redemption Hill. Pray that sermons would be anointed. Pray that the whole counsel of God would be declared. Pray that the gospel would be clear. And pray for opportunities for preaching to take place elsewhere. Let me close. Mark Twain, the American humorist, backaways, said something I've always enjoyed. He said, and I didn't look it up, so I'm paraphrasing. He said, I'm not troubled by the things in the Bible I don't understand. I'm troubled by the things I do understand. And this short, simple text should land on us like that. There aren't deep mysteries here. There there aren't deep waters that we are probing. This is simply, well, folks, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Persist in prayer for missions. Only let us be found faithful. Let's pray. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. Lord, the command is simple. We don't struggle to understand what it means, what it says. It's pretty clear. It's pretty basic. Lord, lead us by your spirit, I pray, to truly see that everything we have we received, that we boast in nothing when it comes to our abilities, our skills, and our gifts. I pray that we would have a passion for the glory of Jesus. I pray for our lives that Jesus, because of his work on the cross, because of his love for us, I pray that Jesus Christ would be our great passion. So Lord, come, come and minister to our hearts. Lord, where any of us need to repent or need adjustment, Lord, in your mercy and kindness, I ask that you'd make that clear to us. Only let us be faithful in these requests, these commands that you give for us to pray. 
Lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.